is a place I'd give the world to see Where the music's softly playing And the rhythm's gently swaying Underneath the stars in a million bars Guitars are softly saying Mexico yeah, that's where we're off to now, to uh, Campeche in Mexico, to our good friend uh, John Bonfilio. Uh, John, thanks uh, ever so much for joining us. Good evening, Martin. How are you? Uh, not too bad yourself. Yeah, all good here. All good. Good, good. You sound a little bit echoey, as if you're in the bathroom or mm. something yeah, no, like there that. Yeah, no, there seems to be some technical difficulties at this end. Right. Well, we'll, we'll um, fight our way through it, uh, starting with that uh, big story of the uh, British tourists being uh, held in Peru. Uh, what can you tell me about that? Yeah, they've been released as of the last few hours, so that seems to have uh, reached a happy ending. Um, they were being held. I mean, it wasn't like the tourists were targeted. Uh, it was basically a community that had uh, been suffering a series of oil spills for a few months that were demanding that the federal government acted on it in some way. Uh, and so the only way that they could actually gain uh, the attention of the federal authorities was by basically enacting a, a roadblock, which they do on rivers there because there aren't any roads. Uh, mm. Not that I want to bring this back to me, Martin, but it basically what happened to me in Chiapas a few months ago. If you remember when I got yes, uh, I do. You know, stuck in a town, that was exactly the same thing. It was an indigenous community protesting by basically stopping the road, blocking the roads and then causing general disgruntlement which was going to, to reach the federal authorities and then cause them to act. And that's exactly what's happened uh, here. Uh, 20, uh, 20 tourists, uh, it seems as though three or four uh, UK citizens in amongst them, series of Americans and French as well, but they were on a transport vessel. They were on something which approximates to a ferry between A and B, and this ferry was just stopped. Uh, so it wasn't like it was, you know, they were held up or anything right. uh, like that, but it certainly caught the world's attention, which is what the indigenous community were really looking for. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, conditions when there were, I mean, I heard some of the uh, reports were saying that uh, conditions were pretty bad, but I, I suspect that was just because uh, they were sort of stranded there for, you know, for a, a period of time. Yeah, absolutely. Conditions are pretty bad because it's the Amazon and it's really hot and sweaty and generally if you're moving on one of these ferries there's, there's a light breeze that blows into the boat but if you're stuck you're anchored by the side of the by the side of the jungle with no air movement um, and you know a bathroom a single bathroom between everybody that's there and when I say this is a ferry I mean I'm going to give you a mental picture of what a ferry is in these in this part of the world it's something like a sort of medium-sized uh, if you imagine like a Mississippi steamship, but smaller, definitely much older, much more rustic. People travel in hammocks. So you rent, you buy your hammock space for the duration of the journey. And the hammock hangs uh, amidships in the shade. And that's wow. how you travel. There's definitely no formal seating. There's definitely not much in the way of bathrooms or vending machines or anything like that. So what you take on is what you've got. Yeah, and, and uh, if you're caught for a, for an hour or two, or even for you know for a few hours, it's um, conditions are going to get pretty bad. I can I can understand that. Yeah, and uh, these people are on the Amazon, so I mean mm. you know they were on the Amazon traveling long distances between A and B in a really remote part of the world. So it's not as though they weren't expecting you know perhaps a little yeah. hardship. 
Indeed, indeed. Um, let's talk a little bit about the uh, election in Brazil. Uh, it was closer than it looked as though it was going to be at one stage, uh, but Lula was uh, duly um, elected uh, back in. Bolsonaro not exactly accepting the result, but he's sort of living with it. Yeah, I mean, voted in by a tiny margin, 50.9% as opposed to 49.1%. And here's a, a stat in terms of the tightness of it. With 70% of the vote counted, they were 50% and 50% absolutely uh, neck and neck. Uh, and, and as you say, way different to what we'd expected. I mean, we knew that the polls after the first round were skewed in terms of Bolsonaro voters not admitting that they were voting for, for Bolsonaro. Uh, but this was, was, I mean, statistically, it was Brazil's tightest election race in its history. Long gone are the days. I mean, the, the last uh, election, which was massively one-sided, was in 1974, where one candidate achieved 84% of the vote. And during the military dictatorship of only 15, 20 years before that, you were having candidates, single candidates, getting 100% of the vote. So, you know, the, mo the modern dem democratic project of Brazil uh, rolls on. And anybody who believes in uh, the democratic process, which you know, hopefully is a few of us, breathes a light sigh of relief at this point. In the interesting thing, as you say, about Bolsonaro's reaction to this is Bolsonaro has never done a scripted thing in his entire life. So the mm. fact that he actually, or people around him, managed to get him to not say anything for two days. And then when he did come out, uh, he didn't, I mean, we kind of knew he was either going to question the election or certainly not concede. He didn't concede, but he, he instructed the transition to begin. He ordered protests to end. And it was really weird because it was the most scripted, sober response in his entire tenure as president, which nobody was expecting. No, absolutely not. Um, we've been talking about, a wee bit about Tijuana there on the um, the border uh, of Mexico and California. Um, tell me about this uh, project that's going on there called There Are Also Dreams on This Side. Presumably this side means the Mexican side of the, yeah, uh, of the border. Yeah, very much so. I think we've spoken a lot about Tijuana over the last few weeks, uh, Martin, but I think you know, one of the things which we've notably, um, it's been notable by its omission, if you like, uh, deliberately so, of course, because we wanted to talk about other things, is the plight of migrants and deportees. And it is important to mention that there are deportees there as well, because it's not just migrants who get to the border and can't cross. It's also people who are removed across the border from one side to the other, including having spoken to this amazing woman, Gaba Cortez, who's launched this this project, Desde Lado También Hay Sueños, on this side, we also have dreams. She's been working for the last few years with deported veterans, uh, veterans who've been who fought for the United States in a variety of wars. And then because of a number of, uh, you know, committing misdemeanors uh, on uh, on U.S. soil, as veterans are want to do because they come back with PTSD or manner mm -hmm. of, uh, you know, de depression, um, drug needs and so on. So anyone uh, who who had a sort of foreign nationality who'd fought for the U.S. was uh, summarily deported to the tune of the fact that, and this massively surprised me today, since 1996, over 94,000 veterans have been deported from the U.S., a significant number of which now live in a community 
um, in Tijuana. This uh, lady, Gabo Cortez, was a photographer, I mean, is still a photographer, film producer, and in 2013, she decided to go and do undertake a photography project at a migrant center. So she went and volunteered there, and she found that she ended up living there for the next four months, ran programs, events, uh, and the like with uh, with individuals there. And at, at that point, I, I mean, I'm tempted to say she got hooked, but it's not that. It's the fact that the relationship she made and the urgency of what she experience at that point kind of gave her a vocation for life and we sort of fast forward to 2022 at this point and as you were saying she's launched this on this side uh, there are also dreams uh, predominantly a program which which uh, works with women migrants and, and deportees on on the Tijuana side of the border helping them to achieve uh, to train them up to achieve dignified work and employment and so on. They've got a border market there too. Uh, and her story of engagement and the relationship she's developed with these with these migrant and deportee communities are absolutely amazing and really centrally important to Tijuana's culture and economy today because it is an endpoint for so many people on these long, you know, life changing journeys. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, just finally, uh, on the on the World Cup, we've been talking uh, a wee bit in the show earlier on about uh, Qatar. Um, what are the chances of Mexico? Mexico have uh, qualified for the uh, for the World Cup. Um, decent team. Thanks, Martin. Chat next week. Yes, there we go. Um, I asked him about uh, Mexico's chances in the World Cup, and uh, I think uh, we lost uh, we lost John there briefly. Did we lose him for a bit? Oh, uh, dear, he's back. Are you, are you there, John? <laughs> I'm so sorry. Hello, I'm still here. That You're was still about there? that was about the chances that Mexico have at this World Cup. Was summed, right. summed up in that technical difficulty. Right. So uh, there's no. They're not going into it with any great hopes of uh, you know of progressing. Look, it's, uh, they've reached in the past eight tournaments, they've reached the last 16 and not progressed any further. And one of these quirks of tournament fates, they seem to meet Argentina in every World Cup. Um, and look, Mexico historically have really good teams. They have really good footballing pedigree, but they have this this sort of mental limit of distance that they can travel. And it, the, the games, the matches against Argentina tell a story because they always play better for 80 minutes, they always take the lead against Argentina. And then on around minute 82, they concede a goal <laughs> and then they concede a second goal. And that's the way that it goes. Again, in this one, they've got a pretty strong team. They've got Raul Jimenez, who everybody, a number of your listeners will know, play for, mm-hmm. plays for Wolves. Um, Irving Lozano as well, like a, a, a key player for, uh, for Napoli, strangely known as Chucky, Chucky, um, yes. who's really come into his own in that. Uh, in that in that position for uh, for Napoli at the moment, they're in Group C with Argentina, Poland, Saudi Arabia. So you would expect them to to advance, but whoever comes second in that group will face off against France in the in the in the last 16. So you know, unless they get a favourable result against Argentina, that pretty much looks as though the way the tournament's going to go for Mexico. Yeah. Oh, well, I'm glad we got that. Um, you know, well, good luck to them. And, uh, John, this is goodbye. Uh, <laughs> thank you ever what? so much. I, I think there was something technical going on in the background there. And uh, we thought we thought you'd finish. We weren't trying to cut you off. Um, John, thanks ever so much. We'll uh, talk again next week. All right. Take care.
Good man. Uh, there we go, uh, John Bonfilio. Joining us from Mexico. Success